You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Chevron Share and CEO Michael Wirth joins Washington Post Live to discuss the oil giant's efforts to curb its current carbon output and the future of energy in a rapidly changing world. Let's listen. Today on our continuing series, The Path Forward, we're joined by Mike Wirth, the CEO of Chevron, one of the world's largest oil companies. We're going to talk about the future of energy, his business. Welcome, Mike. We're pleased you could join us. David, it's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about new technologies, the ways you're uh, trying to get involved in, in uh, carbon reduction in, in a moment. But I want to begin with some basics about the global energy market. Uh, crude uh, oil uh, futures have roughly doubled since their lows uh, of last year. They're now just under $70 a barrel. And I'm curious whether you think that's a sustainable level. The International Energy Agency just recently talked about a softening of demand uh, as the recovery continues. What are you expecting from your perspective about prices? David, we've got a market that is really not in a state of equilibrium. Uh, demand is returning, uh, but unevenly. Uh, and with with a lot of uncertainty as uh, the effects of the pandemic still uh, are evident in many of the markets uh, around the world. Uh, we've seen strong recovery in demand for gasoline and diesel fuel in most places, aviation fuel less so, particularly uh, with uh, international air travel being at a very low level. Uh, and then on the supply side, uh, there's been a lot of investment withdrawn uh, from projects that would deliver new supply, and the countries in OPEC and OPEC Plus uh, have uh, pulled production back as well. And so there's supply that can come back into the market uh, readily and has been coming back uh, steadily here over the, the past uh, number of months. Uh, and then on the demand side, we've seen recovery, but also uncertainty. And so it's a market really that is not in equilibrium, and, and I think it's a difficult one uh, to uh, to make projections about because you have to make assumptions about both supply and demand that are very difficult in an uncertain environment like this. It was interesting that uh, last week the Biden administration decided to urge OPEC to increase production, obviously concerned about rising prices. Uh, that occasioned some criticism from your industry, from uh, the American Petroleum Institute, which represents your industry, I, th I think arguing basically here, here the Biden administration has been trying to reduce domestic production. Now it's calling for increased OPEC foreign production. What did you think about that uh, announcement? And, and do you think that the Biden administration should be doing more to encourage production domestically? Well, I think you know, like every other White House, uh, this administration knows that affordable and reliable energy is essential to our economy. We've got a good recovery underway in the United States, and historically, high energy prices have been a drag uh, on the economy. And so uh, I think what we saw was a recognition of, of that fact. Uh, some of the, the uh, discussion that you've seen does uh, relate to the fact that the administration has uh, fairly quickly implemented a number of policies on pipelines, on, on leasing, and has telegraphed an intent uh, for more that would uh, make it more difficult to invest in the U.S. to grow production. The U.S. had become the largest uh, producer in the world um, in, in recent years. 
And, uh, and I think the, uh, the messages you heard were our industry is prepared to invest and uh, create supply in this country. And, uh, and, and so the call on other countries to, to meet our needs is one that we can meet ourselves. And I think that's really what, what you heard from, from API and, and from some others. And I take it that, that was a position that, that you and your company would support, that we ought to do more to get domestic production up before we encourage OPEC. Well, look, it's a, it's a global market. And so uh, we need supply from, from all over the world to meet needs all over the world. But the, uh, you know, the energy industry was a tremendous part of the recovery out of the last recession uh, in 2008. Uh, has created a tremendous number of, of new jobs and economic strength. We're seeing investment in uh, manufacturing and uh, other industries that is predicated upon uh, readily available and affordable domestic energy. And we think that's good policy for the, the United States. As I say, I want to get to, to the energy uh, alternatives to fossil fuels in a bit, but just staying with some traditional uh, energy themes for the moment. Curious, when you look at Chevron's portfolio of upstream investments, uh, what makes sense to you in this uh, world and what uh, increasingly doesn't? And I should mention that I just a few weeks ago was in Baghdad, Iraq, and talked to their oil minister who, who said uh, unhappily that he was seeing U.S. companies, ExxonMobil, Chevron, which had been investors in Iraq, uh, uh, re reducing their commitments for, for the future. In your portfolio, what are you looking for these days? What does your board of directors want you to be investing in? Well, look, we've got a strong and large uh, traditional oil and gas business and increasingly a, uh, a growing uh, new energies business, which, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. When you look at our traditional business, we want to have uh, positions that, are, um, that are, are, have large scale uh, so we can have e economies of scale and efficiencies. Uh, we look increasingly for low carbon positions and, and we, we understand the carbon impact of all of our upstream operations now. Um, a decade ago, we had uh, many positions that were characterized by long investment cycles and, and very large, you know, tens of billions of dollars of capital investment. Increasingly, we're looking for things that we can do in stages that have flexibility in terms of capital uh, investments. And certainly in the United States with the uh, shale and the Permian and, and other basins, uh, they have tremendous flexibility in terms of uh, ability to ramp up to meet needs, but also as we saw during the pandemic, to pull activity down to conserve cash. And so scale, flexibility, cost competitiveness, and, uh, and low carbon intensity are attributes that we look at in our portfolio around the world. So taking that, that final measure of low carbon intensity, Chevron made an interesting announcement uh, last month that it was creating a new energy unit, as I read the news. And I'm gonna uh, quote uh, what you said in announcing that. We believe that the dedication of resources in a new organization will accelerate growth in multiple business lines that we expect to be part of a lower carbon energy system. So walk us through uh, what that new unit is going to look like, what the kinds of investments you think are particularly attractive. Um, I'm curious especially about investments in hydrogen, which uh, and on one level is very attractive, but there's been some some skepticism recently about whether that's a good investment. Just walk us through that that new line of business. 
Sure. We believe the future of energy is lower carbon. And so we're lowering carbon intensity of operations in our traditional business and growing lower carbon business lines. Uh, the announcement of Chevron New Energies is really intended to innovate from a position of strength, uh, to invest in new technology aligned with uh, skill sets that, that we have in our organization. Uh, we're working with uh, people like Toyota and Cummins and other uh, equipment manufacturers to try to build out new hydrogen value chains, particularly for heavy duty transport. Uh, we are now working with uh, agricultural uh, partners uh, in, uh, in renewable natural gas, dairy farmers, uh, to capture methane that otherwise goes into the atmosphere and displace fossil fuel uh, natural gas. Uh, we're investing and in now producing in renewable diesel fuel in one of our refineries in Southern California, where we use soybean oil to produce renewable diesel and, and uh, soon uh, to be sustainable aviation fuel. And we're working across a number of different partnerships on carbon capture and storage to find ways to take CO2 out of uh, the air, out of combustion streams, uh, out of production streams, and store it uh, in the earth to reduce emissions. So these are all uh, the things you should expect us to do uh, in a lower energy future where the system is diversifying, so are we. I, I read that you said uh, recently that uh, although you're making these significant new uh, investments in alternative energies, uh, that you expect that fossil fuels will continue to be in a kind of steady state of demand going forward. Uh, am I reading that right, or, or are you expecting to see declines? I'm thinking on the order of 25, 2035 and beyond. Well, you know, the world runs on the energy system that we have today, and the entire global economy depends on the mix that we have today. And even as that mix changes, uh, demand also increases. And uh, if you look back at the history uh, of energy, uh, beginning with uh, biomass, wood, uh, peat, uh, going to coal, natural gas, oil, and then as we introduced nuclear and hydro and uh, wind and solar into the system, uh, the system continues to grow and there's a place for, for, for all of these. And there certainly historically has been. We've never really seen any of these sources go down in terms of absolute demand. Uh, we've seen them reduce as a percentage of a larger energy system. And so uh, the reality is, as you look at uh, any uh, credible uh, forecast for the future, we're going from seven and a half billion people on the planet to more than nine billion over the next 20 years. Energy demand likely to increase by 25%. And, uh, and the traditional energies that we produce will be a large part of that system as it grows, even as we bring in these lower carbon energies to diversify that system. So we do believe the demand for our products uh, is growing slowly. Uh, it's not growing as fast as demand for wind and solar, but the, but the current demand is quite large and, uh, and it's very difficult for economies to transition off of that as rapidly as some people would, uh, you know, would suggest. So, and when you look at, at climate science documents and, and projections, is that uh, essentially steady state continuing demand for fossil fuels consistent with the kinds of, of, of reduction in carbon emissions that are necessary to stabilize our, our global climate? Well, you know, there's a, a recent report out of the IPCC, uh, their sixth assessment report, and it has a number of different scenarios in there. Uh, and uh, some of those show continued uh, growth in demand for our products and others uh, show reductions in demand. 
the scenarios are just that, they're modeled uh, scenarios. Um, and you have to look at what it will take in the real world to make those things happen. And uh, it requires uh, innovation, it requires technology development, it requires the mobilization of huge amounts of capital. And uh, generally it will require significant policy actions by, by governments around the world, all of which we see signs of occurring, uh, but not necessarily at the pace that uh, some of the most aggressive carbon reduction scenarios uh, would call for. And so uh, it's why I think engagement with uh, policymakers is important. It's why companies innovating and investing and trying to bring costs down is important. And uh, uh, and it's why having flexibility in your, your portfolio is important because the future is uncertain and we need to be prepared to meet the demand as it emerges. And, uh, and nobody knows exactly what that, what that pattern will look like. Let me ask about one particular part of your alternative new energy portfolio, and, and that's hydrogen, hydrogen-related businesses. I mentioned that there's a little skepticism emerging about that, and thinking in particular of a report that was cited by the New York Times a week or so ago that argued, if I understood it correctly, that hydrogen's advantages are really uh, limited by the fact that you obtain hydrogen from natural gas, and natural gas production is is fossil fuel production, and is not the direction that we really want to be heading when we think about reducing uh, carbon intensity. What, what about that criticism? Well, there are, there are different ways to make hydrogen. Today, uh, hydrogen is manufactured, generally is manufactured from natural gas, and it's an energy-intensive process. Uh, what is called blue hydrogen is a concept that would capture the CO2 emissions from that process and sequester them. So a lower uh, greenhouse gas uh, version of hydrogen than what is traditionally used today. And then there's a technology that's referred to as green hydrogen, uh, which would use water as the, the raw material and renewable power uh, to, to use something called electrolysis to break apart the bonds of hydrogen and oxygen in water and, and essentially create hydrogen and oxygen. It's expensive, uh, it's not uh, cost competitive today, but a lot of people are working hard to bring those costs down. So uh, these are examples of the kinds of things that uh, uh, people in academia, people in industry, um, people in startups with novel technology ideas all are working very hard at uh, with the intent to make them uh, lower greenhouse gas sources of affordable, reliable energy. And I think it's, um, it's unwise to dismiss any of these ideas prematurely as we have smart people working hard at, uh, at solving these problems. So, you know, there's no, there's no free uh, lunch in here. Uh, the existing energy system uh, is in place because it has met the needs of society in an affordable manner. And uh, as we look for new uh, technologies to displace that, they inevitably are going to bring with them greater costs and some trade-offs. And I think we all need to be working together to evaluate those and try to find uh, solutions that work uh, for everyone. That's a, that's a helpful uh, answer. Uh, and thank you for that. I, I wanna ask you if you evaluate the Biden administration's uh, energy uh, policies, uh, their position, uh, for for uh, curtailing uh, oil and, and gas leasing is one uh, key component. You mentioned earlier their position 
on on the Keystone Pipeline, another obvious one. Their commitment uh, to the, the Paris Climate Accords process, uh, getting ready for additional uh, global agreements on climate is, is a third. Looking at, at that overall, uh, what assessment would you make? What would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? Well, we'd like to see some um, increased engagement with our industry out of the administration. There have been some high-level uh, discussions, but uh, but I think we need more. We, we bring tremendous experience and uh, capabilities and expertise uh, to these discussions. And, and, and for, you know, all of our company's history, we've worked with administrations from both sides of the aisle to try to help meet their uh, economic, uh, energy, and environmental agendas. Uh, there are ways that uh, we can help reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the Gulf, Deepwater Gulf of Mexico uh, emissions intensity of production there is some of the lowest in the world. Uh, I recently visited uh, some of our operations in Eastern Colorado, which are, are even lower than that. And, uh, and so there are ways to bring uh, domestic energy into the market uh, and have a low uh, greenhouse gas intensity associated with that, lower than with some of the, the energy that could be imported from around the world. So we'd like to engage in discussions about how we can work together to invest, uh, to create jobs, to responsibly develop energy resources and keep our country strong economically, strong uh, from an energy security standpoint and, uh, and meet, meet the objectives of the administration. So some more engagement and I think a constructive uh, view of how we can be part of the solution is w w what I'd like to see. I'm going to ask you about uh, electric vehicles. On this uh, series of programs, uh, we had the President General Motors uh, not long ago talking about electric vehicles. They've made a huge commitment. They really see this as their future as a, as a company. Uh, and I, I'm very curious what, what you think about the electric vehicle market, how quickly it will come on what the obstacles are to, to rapid adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, just on a very practical level, Chevron has, has uh, gas stations, as we, as we lovingly refer to them. Um, how are they doing in the charging business as, as we move toward electric vehicles? And are you planning to put more money into that so that a Chevron station is the place to, to charge up your vehicle uh, whether it's a Tesla or a GM vehicle, uh, to speak us speak to us about the EV uh, market issues. Sure. So uh, you know EVs are something that, um, that that we're familiar with. It's an evolution, uh, not not really a revolution. This techno technology has been emerging for years. Uh, we've seen decades of policy support here in California, where our company is headquartered, and um, and our planning uh, would. Uh, anticipate hundreds of millions of electric vehicles would be in use uh, in the next 20 years versus uh, only about 10 million at the end of uh, 2020. Uh, it's important to remember that only about 25% of a barrel of oil ends up in light duty vehicle transportation in cars. Uh, the remainder, 75%, ends up in heavy duty transportation in trucks. It ends up in marine uh, transportation ships. Uh, aviation fuels for, for air flight, um, petrochemical production. So there's a whole range of products and uh, contributions to the economy that come from, from our product, not just in vehicles. So even as we see 
electric vehicles uh, penetrate, as I said earlier, the economies are growing and demand is growing overall. So I think there's there's room for for all of the above. When, when you get right down to what are some of the barriers, uh, range has been a challenge and cost has been a challenge. Now, both of those have become uh, much better here in recent times and, and companies like GM and others continue to make progress on battery technology and scaling up uh, the, their business. So these are, these are improving. Uh, refueling points, uh, it's a little bit different than an internal combustion engine uh, where you don't have a gas line that comes into your house, a gasoline line. Uh, and so uh, much of the uh, charging infrastructure has focused on people charging at home or charging at work. And, uh, and that can meet uh, much of the needs. But then you will need a network of charging for uh, some top-ups, if you will, on, on electrons when people are in between. Uh, we've got uh, charging at some of our stations today. Uh, and, uh, and I think we'll see more of that as we move into the future. Uh, there are issues. Uh, the, the charging time is different than the refueling time for an internal combustion engine. You've got to think about how many vehicles you'll have on site, where will they be, how does traffic flow. There's a lot of details at, at that level that need to be worked through. But we're, we're not fundamentally opposed to, to EVs or, uh, or, or putting chargers on our stations. We, we think there's room for all of that. Uh, we'd like to see, you know, kind of technology neutral um, economically competitive uh, products offered to consumers and, and, and consumers will make wise choices. Your company, I believe, is based in California where the governors, uh, I read it, outlawed uh, uh, gas cars by 2035. Is that position realistic? Um, and uh, what, what would that kind of legislative um, requirement uh, ban really mean for your company? Well, it, you know, the governor's asked the um, California Air Resources Board, so the regulator in the state, to evaluate the technical and economic feasibility of an action like that. It's a process that will take time. There will be public consultation. I think there will be a lot of uh, dialogue on just the, the topics you ask about, David. And um, you know, the reality is California today has had its challenges in providing enough electricity uh, during uh, certain times of the year to uh, to keep the lights on. And so we've had the beginning of rolling brownouts and, uh, and outages uh, with today's demand for electricity. Uh, we've got another nuclear power plant in the state that is scheduled to be taken out of service, which provides a large, uh, a large contribution to the state's electricity today. And adding that much demand at a time when uh, grid stability and storage are still issues that are being worked, and the uh, you know the affordability of these vehicles for uh, not people who have uh, you know high incomes, but really uh, for people who do most of the work in this state uh, is still a challenge. And so I think there's a number of uh, both technical and economic issues that will emerge in this dialogue that will bring. Uh, some reality to the ambition and uh, I think inform ultimately what actions the state of California will take. Let me ask uh, what may be a final question as we're near the end of our time. If you were talking to a young uh, energy activist, somebody who feels passionately about, about climate change uh, and who thinks that the traditional ener energy companies like yours are the problem, what would your answer be to that person? There's, there is a movement now to disinvest from companies like, like Chevron, like ExxonMobil, 
I'm sure you feel the, the pressure from this movement as a big part of your business. How would you answer that, that criticism as CEO of Chevron? Well, I actually get the opportunity to do that. We have several hundred interns working for us this summer, many of whom have um, activist ideas and, uh, and are, are like the young person you, you describe. And so I interact with them as part of their, their time with us. And uh, my message to them is simple. There's never been a better time to join an industry like ours and to help create the energy future uh, that we all desire, which is one where energy is affordable for people, it supports economic growth, it has less environmental impact. And we're investing, as we discussed earlier, in uh, these new energy technologies. We're investing in finding ways to reduce the impact of the energy system today. We're looking at ways to take CO2 out of the air, which the most recent IPCC report has flagged as essential if we are going to uh, reach the ambitions of the Paris Agreement. And so uh, we're an industry that has, and we're a company that has a 140-year history. We have the financial strength, the engineering capability, the technology capability, the project management expertise, a few organizations uh, in the world. And we are committed to being part of a lower carbon energy future. And so I implore young people to join us, to bring their ambition, their, their aspiration, and, uh, and their creativity and skills to help us deal with these big challenges and, uh, and create a better future. And, uh, and that's what I would tell somebody who uh, wasn't an intern, and it's certainly what I, what I say to the, the young people that we uh, have working with us uh, this summer. Let me ask you a final, final question. It's one we put to just about every uh, guest we've had on this uh, uh, series about uh, the, the future uh, coming out of the, the pandemic, and that is, how has the pandemic changed your business? How will you be different as a, a company because of things you did to respond to this uh, extraordinary uh, health crisis and then economic crisis? Well, the last 18 months have really showed the, um, you know, the, the resilience and the importance of energy to the economy. We saw demand drop as the economy locked down, but then we've seen it really spring back. And, and so I think it, it reinforces how important uh, energy is to, uh, to the global economy. It's changed us in a few ways. Uh, I would, would say the biggest is it's accelerated um, digital uh, innovation that was underway uh, but as we've been forced into uh, working differently, uh, some of our digital uh, capabilities have really uh, accelerated. I'll give you an example. Uh, in our Permian uh, and other unconventional development, we drill down uh, vertically into the earth, and then we turn the drill bit and we drill horizontally for a couple of miles in, in a relatively narrow band. Uh, for a long time, all of that was controlled on the drill rig. Uh, a couple of years ago, we brought that into a central uh, drilling support center where we can help steer the drill bit and keep it in a very narrow range uh, from a control center. Uh, think you know, it's in Houston, so think kind of mission control-like. Uh, we've got people doing that now from their homes. Uh, we're using augmented reality uh, to troubleshoot things on offshore platforms where an operator can be wearing um, a, a special uh, uh, set of lenses and, and a headset and a subject matter expert halfway around the world can be talking to them and seeing the same things and solving things that we used to fly somebody out uh, to an offshore platform uh, to solve. We're using drones to do inspections now that we used to bring people out and have them 
uh, climb large structures or, uh, or tanks or uh, get out into the field. And we now have drone-mounted uh, cameras and methane sensors that we're using to get high-quality data and integrate it digitally in ways that we wouldn't have before. So uh, I would say those are some of the examples of things that, that have changed us and, and will change our business going forward and, and I think make us much better. Those are fascinating examples. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Mike, for, for joining us, helping us to see how the world looks from the eyes of the CEO of, of one of the world's largest energy companies. Thanks for being with us today. David, it's my pleasure. I appreciate your time. So uh, thanks to everybody, as always, for watching Washington Post Live. To check out the interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.